Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together, near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see And know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Well, what a time to be alive. What a time to be in Isaiah 40 through 55, where God is showing that the institutions, the nations, the powers around are really feeble works of men's hands. Seems like the last, I don't know, five years, things have been shown, been revealed to be 
the feeble works of men's hands. All across the country, whatever side you might happen to be on, somebody is saying, well, we can't trust them anymore. We can't trust that anymore. Whether it's the government or the stock market or the science or your neighbor or your employer or your employees, it seems like everything is coming apart at the seams. Who can you trust? Well, from Isaiah, we see that we are to trust the Lord. But how can we know that we can trust him? We'll see, we'll see that in our text today. As God continues his message that we started looking at from chapter 40, where he speaks comfort, comfort to his people where he brings the mountains down. That is, the proud nations and their idols are brought down. And he lifts the valleys up. God's people, humiliated in their exile, are being raised up. He comforts his people with both of these actions. So today this text is going to be split into three sections that we'll look at. The first, verses 1 through 4, God calls the nations to contend. And then verses 5 through 7, the nation's response to God. And then finally, verses 8 through 20, God's response to Israel, his people. So first four verses, God calls the nations to contend. He says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Well, last week we saw in Isaiah 40, 31, that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And God there was speaking to his people Israel. He called them Jacob and Israel. He said, when you wait upon me, you shall renew your strength. Now they thought God had forgotten them, but he had not. But now, God is speaking to the nations. Here he says coastlands, but that's sort of a catch-all for all the other nations. Kind of like when we would say something like, from sea to shining sea, we mean the United States of America. Well, coastlands is a catch-all term for everything from one sea to the other, all the other nations. So he's, God is now talking to all the other nations. He's not speaking to his people Israel directly right now. And he tells the other nations, renew your strength. Because God is contending with them. He's calling them to come into the courtroom with him so that they can settle a suit. And as we saw, God renews the strength of his people, but the nations who do not know God, what are they able to do for themselves? See, God is effectively saying to the nations, go ahead and get yourselves ready. I am prepared to argue my case. Are you prepared to argue yours? And so with that call to be prepared, God delivers his opening arguments. Last week, as Caleb preached, we we saw three truths about God in contrast to the idols. God as creator, God as Lord, and God as one. And now, in this text, God continues proving himself over against the idols of the nations. 
by showing that these three things are true of him and not of the false gods of the nations. And he does that by proving himself the Lord over history. And he does that by predicting the greatest historical upheaval that region had ever really known a hundred or two hundred years before it even occurs. Now remember, Isaiah is prophesying while Babylon, which will eventually take Israel into exile, he's prophesying while they're just a small little power off somewhere in the east. You know, we saw how King Hezekiah let all the envoys of Babylon in to see all the treasures of the palace and the temple. And that's not something you do when you think an invasion might come from these people. You don't show them all the secrets. So they're obviously not a threat at the moment. But not only is God predicting the rise of Babylon and the exile that they will bring about for his people, he's also predicting the rise of the next great power that's going to wipe Babylon off the map. And that power will return the Jews to their land. Now, God is going to name him specifically a few chapters later in chapter 44, but right now, he's, he's speaking of him. And the one God is talking about is Cyrus, king of the Persians. But this section is clearly about him, even though he doesn't name him specifically yet. Now, this section, there's lots of pronouns. It's kind of hard to tell who's doing what thing. In the original language, it's actually much more clear. So I'm going to read this section, replacing the pronouns with either God or Cyrus, depending upon who is doing the action. And now would be a really good time to just look down at these few verses as I, as I read it, so you can kind of see along what I'm doing. So this, with the pronouns replaced, God stirred up Cyrus from the east, whom victory meets at every step. God gives up nations before Cyrus, so that God tramples kings underfoot. Cyrus makes them like dust with Cyrus's sword, like driven stubble with Cyrus's bow. Cyrus pursues them and passes on safely by paths Cyrus's feet have not trod. God has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So this is how God shows himself as Lord over history, because he predicts Cyrus's great conquest. And he doesn't predict it in the way that we think of prediction. We predict things like the weather or the stock market by making all these little precise measurements over time, looking for patterns, and our predictions are often wrong or at least miss the mark. But God predicts perfectly. But it's not as if he predicts perfectly simply because he has better knowledge and better understanding of the patterns. You know, mankind today, we're really excited about the prospect of supercomputers, computers in general, because we think that the only thing keeping us from predicting the future with great accuracy is just better measurement and better computing power. We think that, you know, if we just make a better computer, eventually we'll predict the future. But 
that's really about as, I want to be careful here, but it's idolatrous. It's idolatrous to think, if I just get enough information and look at the patterns well enough, I will know the future. The people of the past would go to their idols to try and find out the future, and we think we're so much better than them just going to a computer instead. But even if we could make those sort of predictions, sometimes we are pretty accurate, that would not be enough. Because God's opening argument against the nations makes it clear that not only does he predict the future, he is the one making the future happen. God is the Lord of history because he is the one who causes history to unfold. I mean, I can make a prediction with 100% accuracy. The sun will rise tomorrow morning. That's, that's going to happen. I mean, you can, you can write that down. It'll happen. And thankfully, we're actually getting to see it. I was kind of thinking maybe we wouldn't see it until late March, but we've been seeing the sunrise even. But, you know, okay, that's, a, that's an accurate prediction. And we could chalk it up to laws of physics, gravity, rotation of the earth, whatever. We could chalk it up to laws of logic and language. You know, if the sun doesn't rise, well, then it's not morning. So whatever it is, it's not the morning. But the best reason I can tell you that the sun will rise tomorrow morning is that God has promised that it will. In Genesis 8.22... After Noah gets off of the ark and makes a sacrifice, God makes a covenant with him. And he says to him, among other things, he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God is the one making the sunrise. I can predict it, but God is making it happen. And God is the one who raised up Cyrus, who gave the nations over to him. God is the one who trampled kings underfoot. He's the one who calls generations from the beginning, who makes the nations what they are. See, he's not just really good at making predictions. He is the master of every man and molecule and spirit and star. So then, having made that claim as his opening argument against the nations, how do the nations respond to God? The nations' response in verses 5 through 7. They start, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. You know, at first it seems like they're too afraid to even do anything. But they do eventually make an appearance, and their response is short and deeply unsatisfying. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. This is very short because it's a pitiful response. 
God presents himself as master of all history and says, okay, nations, what do you got? And the nations present their idols as a response. Idols that the nations work desperately to make. They're all working together. It's a great effort of teamwork. But it doesn't make much difference. And there's a deep irony even in how the nations respond. When they look at their idols, they say, it is good. Which should remind you of the thing that God says over all creation when he makes it. You know, how can these nations who rely on their idols that are the works of their hands, their own creations, how can they contend with God who made the heavens and the earth and all that fills them? And they can't. They have no good answer to God. God has delivered just an opening argument, just some brief statements. And that's enough to send the nations quivering in fear to their vain and useless idols. That's all they have to cling to. And so, that being the response, God doesn't respond to them any further. His opening argument is enough. So he turns away from the nations and to his own people. God's response to Israel, which is the largest of these three sections, and will break it up itself into three smaller sections. First, God calls his people, verses 8 through 10. Then, he could, then God contends with his people's enemies, verses 11 through 16. And finally, God miraculously refreshes his people. So first, God calls his people. Now, he does two things here. He first calls them by their name, many of their names, reminding them of his past faithfulness. And then he also gives them a command. So first you see he calls them Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then he says what he has done for them. I took from the ends of the earth and called you from your farthest corners and said of you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. He, he took them from being this scattered band of mismatched people, and he brought them together as his own, as one group, as one people, and delivered many great and precious promises to them. And now, in consolation, in order to comfort his people, he piles up the ways that they are his people. They're his people because Abraham is their, is their father, and Abraham was God's friend. They're his people because Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, is also their father, the one that God had called to be his own. And then, having reminded them who they are and who he is, God gives them this command. Fear not, 
for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I mean, what a grace. God's people are in exile because of their sins. They are wicked. We, who are God's people, are wicked. But the command that God gives is not something that they need to do in order to cleanse themselves from their wickedness so that they can atone for their sins, so that they can get back to the land, so that they can receive the promises again. That's not the command God gives them. The command he gives them is fear not. Don't even be dismayed. And he gives them the best reason possible they should not fear. Because, oh, you downcast people, oh, you chosen, beloved, little children of my friends, I am your God and I will strengthen you. The nations might say to their idols that they make with their hands, they may say to them, be strong. But I, the Lord, say to you, I will strengthen you. Not only will God strengthen and help you, he will uphold you in righteousness with his righteous right hand. Not only does God uphold us, his people, in the midst of our enemies, in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of the exile, he actually is removing our enemies. As he tells his people through Isaiah in the next seven, six verses. God contends with their enemies. He says, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. We stand at a very fortunate time in history because we can see how this has been fulfilled. We can see in the short term, from the time of the exile to the return, in the Old Testament, how it's fulfilled. But we can see in the somewhat long term, if you consider 2,500 years long compared to eternity. Just consider all the people who contended with God's people throughout history. We've got Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, where is he now? Well, his bones are at the bottom of the Red Sea, underneath the mud of a few thousand years. We've got the nations of Assyria and Babylon. How long has it been since their foreign policy made the newspaper? Or the Caesars, Nero, Diocletian, Julian. Caesars of Rome who tried to destroy the kingdom of God and his Christ. And I could name a bunch more, and there are many more that I couldn't name and don't know. And unless you are a history buff, you probably don't know half the guys I did name. Or you might have a vague sense of who each of them is. But that's kind of the point. Those who contended against God's people... 
Who cares? Who are those guys? What, what did they do? God consigned them to the dust heap. Their memory remains in statues whose faces have been worn away by desert sand. You can find them in the footnotes of a history textbook. But that is not where God wants us to focus. Because he turns again to his people and he speaks comfort and consolation to them yet again. He says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. See, God is again emphatic in his declaration of his care for his people. He declares his name and titles. I, the Lord, your God. That's how he begins. And he ends with your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And he again calls them by their names, Jacob, Israel. The name that he gave them. And he says they are a worm. Not like an earthworm, but more like a maggot or a grub. The weakest form of the weakest creature. But that really doesn't matter a whole lot because God is their help. God holds their right hand. And God will use the weakest of his people to destroy the proud strength of the nations. Again, he says, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. I didn't really know what a threshing sledge was exactly, so I had to look it up. It's, it's a tool, I mean, threshing. When you thresh grain, you break it apart, you remove the edible part of the grain from the inedible husk and the stalk. And a threshing sledge just kind of looks like a big wooden sled. Many pieces of wood laid down and, and nailed together. And on the bottom side, there's a bunch of sharp rocks all, all nailed underneath, basically, pounded in. And so you stand on the flat side, and you hook it up to an ox, and you have it pull you over top of the grain so that it breaks open the husks and, and removes those so that you just have the good grain. It's kind of terrifying to look at. Uh, it's a good thing it moves slow. because. It's, I think as Caleb said, it kind of is just like a giant cheese grater looking thing. Like just mowing down the mountains. Just take this threshing sledge and just take the huge nations that are proud and just whittle them down to nothing. Honestly, go look up threshing sledge later. I have to call it a threshing sled, but you'll find something on Wikipedia. It's, it's powerful imagery. Um, Keeping with the farming metaphor, I kind of imagine it as what happens 
when a rooster pheasant takes a combine head on. If you know, you know. The combine is pretty ignorant of the war that just went on, and the rooster is pretty gone. Um, yeah, if you know, you know. This is what God is saying he's going to do with his weak people, though. He is going to take the pride of the nations and whittle it down to nothing until it's just straw and chaff that the wind just blows it away and it's gone. And God is going to do that with his weak people so that they rejoice in him and glory in him rather than in some strength of their own. But lastly, in our text, God tells his people how he will be caring for them in the meantime. Before all that happens, how is he going to take care of them? And it's by miraculously refreshing his people. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Thirst is a very powerful desire. And so God uses it here to describe all of the needs that they might have. And God refreshes them with means... He gives them water to quench their thirst with means that are not naturally possible. He says rivers on bare heights. You don't get rivers flowing at the top of a mountain. That's not where they flow. And he says he's going to put fountains in the valleys. You don't get fountains springing up out of the bottom of the valley. They come out of the side of a hill or something like that. And certainly you don't get pools of water in a desert. But that is exactly what God is going to do to refresh his thirsty people. The naturally impossible is entirely possible for God. And he oftentimes does it in exactly that way, so that we would look to him for help and not look to anything in our circumstances or our power or around us for help. He then says that he will put this in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. In the desert, he'll put the cypress and the plain and the pine. That's seven, seven trees, like seven days of creation, like seven many other places in Scripture, representing fullness, completeness, perfection. So God is saying in the desert, it's normally dry and parched, and the sun beats down upon you. In that desert, there will be pools of water and rivers and fountains for you. And, in fact, there will be lush vegetation. There will be shade for you, shade trees to cover you, so that the sun does not beat down upon you. There will be fruit from these trees for you to eat. And he does this. He tells us why he does this. He says that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Notice that God does not say here that he is going to take them out of the desert 
He's not promising to shorten their exile. He's going to fulfill what he prophesied against them. He is going to send them into exile. But even then, God is quick to bless his people. He sends them out of the land he promised to them with violent force because they have polluted it with all their sins. But almost immediately, he provides for their comfort. I mean, God is actually speaking comfort to them through the prophet Isaiah decades before they even go into exile. Their judgment means they will be exiled. But like they once wandered the desert for 40 years, they'll be kept from the land. But this desert that they're cast into now will be full of streams of water and shade trees and food, comfort upon comfort. God is going to provide for them. He's setting the table for them. Even in the midst of their difficulties and their trials, God is providing comfort to them. As we move towards the table that God has provided for us in Christ, true comfort food, let's consider three things in conclusion. First thing, fear not. And while you're at it, don't be dismayed either. That's just a plain command from this text for us, for all time, for God's people. Fear not and don't be dismayed. It's good that it is a command. If you've been here a while, you know, I'll preach through the Ten Commandments and I'll hammer on this forever. It is good that God gives us commands because his commands are not like God wagging his finger at us saying, you better not fear or else. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. No. God's commands come with the almighty power to accomplish what he commands. When God commanded light to come out of darkness, light gets created in that command and shines. When God commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb, that man, four days dead, stood up and walked out. And when God commands you and I to fear not, Do not take it as an opportunity for you to muster up your own strength and courage and determination. Recognize that when God tells you fear not, it is his power that allows you and makes you fear not. Because it's the Almighty who made the heavens and the earth, who broke the grave in pieces, It is he who is behind you and beneath you and before you and beside you who holds your right hand and upholds you with his righteous right hand. Which leads to the second point of conclusion. Remember God's past faithfulness. Now God has modeled this for his people all throughout this passage, calling them by name, the names that he has given them. Abraham was the name God gave to Abram. Israel was the name God gave to Jacob. 
And he calls himself by the covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh. The name he gave to Moses when he told Moses he would be bringing the people out of Egypt. And he continually is reminding them how he has already delivered their forefathers through all kinds of distresses. So we must also remember God's faithfulness to us. I mean, all the Bible is full of this. I mentioned a bunch of it already. Most of the prophets, honestly, if you read most of the prophets, their admonition to the people is, hey, remember. Hey, remember the Lord. Remember what he's done. Remember who you are. Stop being forgetful and leaving him in sinning. Remember. And we are in that group. We are in the group of God's people. When God brought Israel out of Egypt land, he was bringing your family out. Because Abraham is the father of all the faithful. So Joshua is your brother. So let's listen to our older brother's wisdom as he told the people of Israel in Joshua 23, verse 14. He says at the end of his life, after they had conquered much of Canaan, much of the promised land, he says to them, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. All the people saw it happen. The promised land was both for them. It was promised to them, but now it was actually land that their feet were set upon. The place they stood while Joshua spoke. And this remembrance isn't just for things that happened that were recorded in the Bible. When the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 300s um, decided to abandon the long and storied tradition of his forefathers persecuting Christians to the death, when he instead made Christianity the state religion, that's something worth remembering. Or when a freak storm destroys the Spanish Armada so that they don't invade and destroy Protestant England. Or when George Washington crosses the Delaware to surprise the British forces on Christmas. Well, light some fireworks on the 4th of July for God's faithfulness in helping his people. And we have these tales in our lives too. How the only reason I didn't roll a car when I was learning to drive was because God sent some angel to stick his thumb on the roof and hold it down. I mean, maybe not an angel per se, something, somebody. It was God's faithfulness to me. I mean, that's somewhat of a silly thing. But it is God's faithfulness. We must remember what God has done. How he has been faithful. And we must look for him to be faithful still into the future. Which is the third point of conclusion. Looking for God's future faithfulness. And when I say look, I don't mean just, you know, you get the newspaper and the Hugo's ad falls out and you're kind of like, oh yeah, what's, uh, do I need any of this? I don't mean look, just kind of let your eyes look over it. I mean look like the prodigal's father 
every day, straining his eyes, looking out as far as he could see across the horizon to see any sign that his son was returning to him. And the moment he saw the first sign of his son returning to him, he runs, runs to his son and embraces him and hangs on to him. So where will we look? Where will we look to see God's faithfulness? We can see his future faithfulness promised in his word. We can also see it in each other, our brothers and sisters, those whom Christ has purchased. We can see it in the blessings that Christ gave, the orders, the commands that he gave to his church in baptism and the Lord's Supper before us. The Lord's Supper is a promise of God's future faithfulness. And it is God's faithfulness to us right now. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that Christ is yes and amen. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He says that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And then Paul even says, it is God who establishes you in Christ and has anointed us all and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the persons of the Trinity. The promise and seal and guarantee of the blessings of God for us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, this time in 1 Corinthians. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a moment, that's that's exactly what we're going to do. The band will come back up. I'll pray, the band will come up, they'll play, and all who are desirous to come and take of Christ come and have the bread and the juice. This is God's faithfulness to his people. If you're not among his people, you can be. You can, in Christ, come to him. But if you haven't, just stay where you're at. It's okay. Consider, consider these things. And also, for parents with young children, if they have made a profession of faith, um, 
please invite them to come as well. And if not, then use this time to teach them what it means, faith in Christ and trust in him for their salvation. So Christ has prepared the table. Let us make ourselves ready. Pray with me. Merciful Father, again we thank you that you have called us to be your people. You have delivered us from all our troubles. And you have given us your very Son. Lord, we pray that this meal that Christ has given to us would be strengthening to us as we trust in him for our salvation. That you would uphold us in righteousness with your right hand. That we would be willing and able evermore to live according to your commandments. And specifically, Lord, as you command us today, that we would fear not remembering and knowing that you are with us that we would not be dismayed because you are our God and you strengthen us and help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.